Now, guys, I said this last week, but again, we are isolating verses from the whole context, which is not the best way to study the Bible. Um, so much of the message of the Bible is found in understanding the uh, uh, the bigger picture. And so when you, I mean, you've heard of the uh, the thing that you, you want to avoid from um, a text out of context is a pretext. You've heard that little, uh, that little thing. Uh, well, but really that's the way we are handling Romans. You, you take a verse this week and another verse next week and it's really isolated. Uh, not many fault of any ones. It's just the way that we're studying the book. And so you miss the bigger picture and, and I keep reminding you of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is Paul's determination to overturn the notion that is um, mentioned in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? One of those, one of those uh, uh, unthinkable thoughts that uh, tend to um, that tends to arise when grace is preached properly, um, because grace is such grand news. Uh, it's it's very difficult for people to believe that anything as wonderful as the forgiveness of God made available by faith. In, uh, in the finished work of Christ would, would ever cross the mind of God. And that the, the idea is so uh, rich and, and glorious that uh, some people are trying to find, all right, well, maybe <laughs> if I understand you correctly, then okay, uh, uh, why don't we just really sin a lot and then sin and then grace can abound the more. And Paul is addressing the horror of such a notion. And so don't forget, that's the context of chapter 6. I say to you, the entire chapter is designed to overturn such a notion. And so uh, as he concludes in verse 19 with an exhortation to us to present our members, that is, the members of our body, uh, the, uh, our, the members of our anatomy, the, uh, our minds, our emotions, all of it is to be yielded and presented as slaves of righteousness. Then in these closing four verses, he gives us an argument to support that exhortation. He gives us a negative argument in verse 20 and 21. That is, um, uh, here is a description of being a slave of sin. And we looked at that last week. And then in verse 22, which is our, uh, uh, will be our subject tonight, um, he gives us a positive argument to obey the exhortation of verse 19. The positive argument is, but now, verse 22, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Uh, That, uh, in essence, guys, is a verse that contrasts very nicely to what he has said in verses 20 and 21. He has described a non-Christian stance in verses 19 and 21. Um, There was a fruitlessness, a shame, and it resulted in death. Well, what he says in verse 22 in terms of describing a Christian life is that it it bears fruit, it is uh, characterized by freedom, and it ends in life. So what you have in verse 22 is a verse that contrasts the, the uh, uh, description of a Christian to that of a cr- description of a non-Christian that was contained in verses 20 and 21. I hope that was somewhat clear. Now, so what I want to do is uh, take verse 22 and use it as a, um, as a description of one who has indeed been joined to Christ by faith. 
And it begins with that very um, uh, Pauline kind of statement, this but now. That's something that you see a lot in Paul, a but now. Um, as, he, as he leaves his description in verses 20 and 21 of a non-Christian, now he is about to describe uh, a Christian and he says, but now. I think the first thing that I can say to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that what Paul is, say, is using to describe a Christian is that, first and foremost, that a Christian has undergone a very profound change. <clears throat> there was a then of verse 21, um, the things that you have, um, what fruit did you have then? The then has become a now. Jesus Christ is not only uh, the um, uh, one who divides time between B.C. and A.D., He is also the one that divides between the then and the now. That is, He's describing something that used to be true of us then, <coughs> but now there has, we have undergone a profound, catastrophic change. And that is fundamental, ladies and gentlemen, to understanding um, this, this new person called a Christian. They have undergone a tremendous change. Now, guys, before I leave this subject of, of change, I, I wanted to say one other, uh, uh, just one thing that I think is related. In the, in the world of... Um, uh, a theological dialogue, one of the things that is, uh, of course, something very important to you is the issue of assurance. That is, the consciousness that I am indeed safe, that I am indeed a child of God. And, and I hope that you all have that. I hope you all enjoy rich um, quantities of assurance. Oftentimes that's not true among the people of God, and, and, um, and we can help you work through some of that. But um, in, in the discussion of assurance, there are often three grounds that are mentioned concerning assurance. Um, the most reliable grounds of assurance is, of course, the promises of God. That is, you, 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 you reason and you think about yourself syllogistically. You know what a syllogism is? You remember what a syllogism was? Um, all who believe uh, are saved. That's the major premise. All who believe are saved. The minor premise is, I believe. So the conclusion is, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. That's, syllogism. That's, that's a syllogism. A major premise, minor premise, and conclusion. Um, so the promises of God are the surest grounds of our assurance. The other, uh, or another grounds of assurance is, of course, the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned um, in Romans 8. The, the Holy Spirit testifies with my spirit, and we cry out, Abba, Father. But that is a, that's a very dangerous, not a dangerous, it's a, it's a very um, uh, subjective kind of grounds for one's assurance. Um, uh, because sometimes this th- 
anything that we think is the witness of the Holy Spirit might be nothing more than dyspepsia, you know. But uh, there is indeed a witness of the Holy Spirit to our spirits that we're, that we're what it is. The reason I say all of this is because the third ground of, um, of our assurance is change. Change. The Christian has undergone a remarkable, profound, sweeping, catastrophic change. And, and that change should be a helpful determinant, a helpful determinator in terms of wrestling with your own soul. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is a but now in the life of believers. There is a point to which we, many of us can turn and say, then, but now. Now, what I want to concentrate on is the, 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 this, the nature and the end and the fruits of this change, and it's all contained for you, I think, in verse 22. This change that, that I think Paul has in mind, the one that I'm talking about, is a, is a, um, is a complete change. There's, it, it's not a simple modification of lifestyle. It's not simply another minor addition to my schedule as if, oh, I've become a Christian, I've added church attendance. No, ladies and gentlemen, it is a fundamental, it is not a temporary, it is a fundamental change of the molecular spiritual structure of our souls. Um, It it is so uh, uh, sweeping that Paul makes some statements in 2 Corinthians 6 about there is, because of the change, there there is really nothing that we have in common with a non-Christian. He says, um, what fellowship has light with darkness? What communion is there between Christ and Belial? Well, those are rhetorical questions. What's the answer to them? What fellowship has light with darkness? None. That's, that's the nature of a rhetorical question. It, it implies its answer. There's, there's no commonality or common ground between the non-Christian and the Christian. But guys, those are the only two alternatives. There's only two, which we'll mention in a moment, there's only two slaveries. There is either a, a slavery to sin or a slavery to God. One of those slaveries starts at birth, and the other slavery starts at the new birth. Um, I want you to notice in the text, but now, having been set free from sin... I've made this point before, but here's another type of place to make it. You will notice that that is a passive verb. That is, having been set free. This change that I'm talking about, this, this monumental change, is something that is done to us. We don't engineer or even initiate that change. You know, there's a, there's a famous statement made in Jeremiah chapter 13 about um, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change its spots? Those are other rhetorical questions, and the answer to those are no. Can, can, the, uh, can the leopard change its spots? No. And can you change the very uh, uh, center of your spiritual being? No. No, the the text says, having been set free. That is, God enables us to embrace this gospel that is so glorious in the first place. 
Now, so it's a sweeping, monumental, all-inclusive change. Now, notice... Um, he goes on, having been set free from sin. That is, the nature of this change is that we've been freed. You know, um, those of you who've been around here for a long time, I, in fact, Richard, I don't even know if you still use him in the new members class. Uh, we have a three-hour new members class, and, and I teach the first hour, and then Richard teaches the other two, but I don't even know whether he still uses him, cause, but I used to. A little card that we produced, and we, we talked about characteristics of the mature believer. And one of the characteristics that, that, um, that I love the most is the characteristic of liberty, the characteristic of freedom. And that's one of the things that I feel so passionately about as, a, as what I hope is the pastor of a grace-based church, a church that preaches a grace-based gospel. Because grace, in so many ways, is is synonymous with freedom instead of bondage, instead of tyranny. That's what sin does. It brings you into a tear under its tyranny. But we've been set for I remember I don't know why I still remember this, but maybe because it was such a an emotional high for me, but you know, I was 18 years old and, and a, a freshman at the University of Tennessee and we were on quarters back then. And, you know, the, the, the Vietnam War, this is in 1966, so the Vietnam War was a specter that was over all the male college students. And if you didn't make your grades or if you, you know, if you, you had to take, a, I forget what it was, you had to take a minimum load of 15 hours or 18 hours, whatever it was. But if you only passed 15 hours, you were gone. Uh, before uh, 90 days were up, you were in a rice paddy. And, um, I mean, that, that just kind of loomed over all of the men of a, of a college campus back then. And, and so uh, the, whole, the whole thing was just, you know, just traumatizing. You go off and you leave your mommy and your daddy and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're on your own and <clears throat> you're, you're trying to make the grades and stay out of Vietnam and et cetera. Well, I remember my last exam was Western Civ, and I think they offer Western Civ just to weed out those who can continue on. You know, it's like Western Civ is this thing with this incredible body of information that you're... I still remember the name Diocletian. Um, if you don't know who he is, you can check your, your Western Civ books. But anyway, I still remember some of that stuff because I studied like crazy for that West. But it was my last exam in my first quarter. And there was another thing that was at stake, too, and that was initiation of the fraternity. And if they I hated was being a pledge. I hated it. Well, and you know, um, and so I wanted to get that under my belt. I wanted to make my grades. I, you know, and it was my first quarter away. You know, and and, and so it, you 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 it all kind of siphons down to this big day of this period of exams, and then the final exam, the final of the finals. My my last of the finals was the Western Civ exam. Of course, it was the hardest. And I had just booked for that thing like crazy. And I remember um, finishing it and walking out of Ayers Hall, if you know anything about um, Ayers Hall, up on the hill at, at UT. And I, was, I had to finish that exam. I was going to hop in a car, and I was headed home for my first break after my first quarter. And I remember finishing that exam, knowing that I didn't ace it, but knowing that I had done fairly decently, that I could breathe deeply. And I remember walking out of there and walking onto that little courtyard right outside of Ayers Hall, and there was such an exhilaration of sensing, ah, freedom! <clears throat> I, 
maybe that's what has gone deep into my soul. And, uh, but freedom is one of those things that I, that I value about being a Christian. And that's the, one of the first words that Paul uses to describe the Christian position. Freedom. You have been freed. You have been set free from the bondage to sin. You have been set free from sin. And, and you know, guys, I don't know whether the non-Christian world recognizes how, how in bondage they are. Um, it's a freedom from the domain and from the reign and the tyranny of sin. It, it doesn't mean that I've been made perfect. Sin is, uh, is still present in me, but it's no longer my master. It's a nuisance. But I have been set free from that tyranny of sin. And now, says the text, having become slaves of God. That's another characteristic of the Christian position. We have been, it's a change that has <clears throat> set me free from sin and now I have become slaves to God. I belong to a new kingdom. Now if you've got your Bibles in your laps, I want you to see something that at least the New Testament takes very seriously. Look, oh my. My record is 11. Uh, that is not, that is nowhere close to the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, the older I get, the, the less stamina I have, you know, for, for lots of things. But uh, um, anyway, I want you to see something in the text that at least the text takes pretty seriously. Look at verse 16. To whom you present yourselves slaves to obey. That is a slavery to obedience. Look at verse 17. Uh, that you were now slaves, um, uh, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you were delivered. That is, now there's, there's a slavery to a doctrinal position. Look at verse 18. Uh, then set free, you became slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 22, we're described as slaves of God. So uh, in, in this paragraph here, I'm described as a slave of obedience, a slave of doctrine, a slave of of righteousness and a slave of God's. You know, I, I don't know that we um, uh, like that idea of thinking of ourselves as enslaved. But ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament is very bold about that, uh, that description, that we are slaves of, slaves, of, slaves of God and we now have no rights to live unto ourselves. We are in dutiful bondage. Um, to this God who made us and redeemed us in Christ Jesus. You know, guys, the thing that, that, that I think so much of the church needs to hear is that we don't need to have another spiritual experience. What we need is a fresh realization that we are slaves of God and we are utterly and absolutely to be at His disposal. You know, I, I, and the, after the question of um, when are you leaving, uh, you know, do you know where the door is, buddy? Uh, after that question comes this question. Uh, are you all ready? And the answer to that question is no. 
no, we're not ready. I don't know how you you get your mind around this thing. Um, um, you know, I, I said to somebody tonight, we're taking a veritable pharmacy with us. I mean, that's just one suitcase, you know. <laughs> that and my wife, my wife packed woolite. What in the world do you need woolite for in Budapest? I, I I do not understand this. And she, but anyway, but. Um, it's just hard. People are saying, are you excited about this? Well, no, I'm not. I'm terrified by it. I really am. I have so much, you know, I think, okay, we get off the plane at 6 o'clock Friday night. We go maybe get some sleep and catch up a little on the jet lag on Saturday. I preach on Sunday, and they're having this big meal for us on Sunday, and then it's Monday. Now what do I do? Sleep. I don't do much of that. <laughs> I haven't done that much of that for years. But, the, you know, I think, I asked Mickey Hill tonight, I said, um, if I crater, can you come get me? <laughs> Will one of your airplanes make it over the Atlantic? He assured me they would. But, but my point is, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know, that I want, I want to share with you my biggest fear. Here's my biggest fear is that God wants me to stay. I don't want to stay. By the way, he hadn't said anything about that. <laughs> but I don't want to stay. I mean, is that, what he's, is that what he's up to? I don't want that. I love my life here. And I don't want that. But my point is, I have no rights to even want a locale. I'm enslaved to this God, and I'm to be utterly and absolutely at His disposal. Knowing that, the only place where joy and and contentment is found is right where you'd have me. You know, but first of all, I would lose my marriage. That would come to a screeching halt. Um, But you understand what I'm I'm trying to say is, I want to be that. I want to be... So mindful and so joyous about being enslaved to God that I am utterly and absolutely rightless. I don't have any of those. Unfortunately, it's those things that make the preparation for this whole thing so... It's like you're, you're wading through jello. Every step is, okay, well, now go get a haircut... Because you don't know whether you can get a haircut over there and, you know, uh, go see the doctor and, you know, go uh, go get the oil changed because Emily doesn't know where the oil plug is. <laughs> and, you know, go change the filters in the air conditioning system, you know, because she certainly wouldn't think to do it. So, I mean, and it's like, oh, i got to go do that. And, oh, i got to. It's just too big. But the joy, at least ought to be for us, ladies and gentlemen, is that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. How do you like that? That's what that text says. That's who we are. Which means that the clamor for rights needs to be muted for all of us. As slaves of God, our position is very secure. We can't can't be taken back 
to, uh, to that previous slavery, that old slavery. And then notice in the text that um, there is a result of this monumental sweeping change that I mentioned, that we've having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. The result of this change, ladies and gentlemen, is the bearing of fruit. Uh, up in that verses 20 and 21, in terms of describing a non-Christian, they were fruitless. But fruit is the inevitable result of a changed life. Notice these words, ladies and gentlemen. It says, you, having, you have your fruit. Gang, uh, there is no such thing as a Christian with no fruit. There's no such thing. Remember the, um, the, um, the parable of the four soils. And you've got the, you know, it falls on the wayside, and it falls on the thorns, and it falls, you know, and, on and, on, and, the, and it falls on good ground, and it brings forth much fruit. The, the key uh, indicator of a proper reception of the, of the seed is the bearing of fruit. There's no such thing as somebody who has undergone this change that bears no fruit. They all bear fruit, ladies and gentlemen. And what kind of fruit is it? It's a fruit unto holiness. The result of having God or being God's slave is always holiness. Now guys, let me just remind you real quick. Remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to overturn this unthinkable thought mentioned in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, if you have undergone this sweeping change, the inevitable result of that is fruit unto holiness. Um, we, we get further and further removed from sin and, and more and more um, uh, we become, we, we draw into likeness with Christ. That's the inevitable result, ladies and gentlemen, of being um, changed or, and having been set free from sin. Inevitable. There's no such thing. No such thing. Don't fool yourself. Don't kid yourself into thinking that the change might have taken place within me, but there's, there's, no, uh, there's no evidence of that. Unthinkable thought. Uh, there, may be, there may be differences in the quantity of, quantity of fruit that is born by each of us, but there will always be fruit. And then he says, uh, somewhat as the last description, or the last, <coughs> pardon me, the last um, result is that they... Um, and the end, everlasting life. Um, notice that in verse 21, the end of that life was death. The end of this life, or the end of this stance, is everlasting life. You know, when, when, um, <clears throat> when I was a, a, a small boy, I lived in a little neighborhood where um, it was Gary Guy and Tommy Bell and, and uh, Johnny Stringer and me and then this guy across the street named David and we really weren't very nice to him. And, um, but we, we constantly uh, were playing Army. And um, I remember <laughs> Tommy Bell was always the, the, uh, the most coveted member of one's team because he could make the sound of a machine gun better than the others could. And whoever could make the sound of a machine gun was, was you know, you were, 
Oh, I couldn't make it very good, so I was never very valuable in this game that we played. But, but we had a rule. <laughs> I don't know why I still remember this, but we, we, have a, we had a rule that if you were killed three times, you had to stay dead. <laughs> that was it. I mean, uh, you couldn't play anymore if you got killed three times. And so there was all this arguing that go- was going on, you know, about, Oh, no, I wasn't killed. I was just wounded. No, you didn't kill me. I, and, uh, but my point is, you know, um, you don't get that, do you? You don't get three shots at this. When you're dead... You're dead. That is, and the end, there's not a second end. And then a third end. There's only one end. And the one end that is promised to the believer is everlasting life. You know, um, that, that, is a, that is an odd concept, is it not? I mean, you know, we, we love it. We preach it and adore it. But... Uh, uh, have you come to grips with the fact that at the end of the believer's experience awaits him everlasting life, um, never to be taken from him? There is an old, um, I don't know what it is, it's a, a legend, I guess, about a, um, about a Jewish rabbi who was so down on his luck that everything that he touched uh, would turn... Uh, badly, it would be uh, gloom and doom for this particular man, and and it, they went on to say about him that that um, that had he gone to the casket business, people would have probably stopped dying because his luck would have been so bad. But people don't stop dying, do they? No, they don't. But for us, for the people of God, what is promised to us is everlasting life. Now, guys, do you see how utterly contradictory is the suggestion of verse 1? Um, this, the revulsion that Paul has to this idea that, that anybody who named the name of Christ could find enjoyment in continuing in sin. What he's describing is a change that sweeps so comprehensively over the soul that what happens, or the result, is everlasting life. But what we are, we are rendered, we are, uh, we're, the, the, the product is a group of people who now have no fellowship with darkness, who have no communion with Belial, there is absolutely no commonality between the people of God and those who are not. The suggestion that we could go on to enjoy sin, utterly unthinkable. Next week we'll look at verse 23. Let's quit. Our Father, we do thank you for... Uh, every opportunity to grapple with your word and um, see there those things which are um, oftentimes so so categorically different than than what the media would tell us is the truth we find 
we find the stream of things in the media and, and in every other place around us. And then we come and sit beneath your word and find that it is on a collision course in so many ways with what the world suggests is reality. I pray, O oh God, that you will give us once again a, a, an enjoyment of um, these descriptions of, of us who have experienced that grand and glorious change wrought by your Holy Spirit. We are a people who have been swept out of one kingdom and swept into another. We were once slaves of sin. We are no longer. We are now slaves of righteousness, slaves of a new form of doctrine, and slaves of yours. Give us a great appreciation and enjoyment of knowing that we are slaves who are utterly and completely at your disposal. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.